And welcome into the Pacers Podcast. I'm Scott Agnes coming to you from a hotel in downtown Boston. Actually, a decent weather today. Just a little windy, but otherwise, good festivities and uh, activities here all week. And we had the Boston Marathon Monday. And if you haven't checked it out, go to theathletic.com. I wrote about how the Pacers were here the last time when the bombing took place back in 2013. All the players are gone. Ten staff members remain, so I gathered their thoughts together for a story there. Sitting here up in my hotel room, joined by Jaron Weiss. He's one of the writers for The Athletic. He also, you can find him at CLNS Media and B-Ball Breakdown. Jared, thanks for joining me here tonight. Well, it means you got through all that without stumbling. <laughs> it's a handful. I wanted to say basketball breakdown, but I know, right? It's B-Ball Breakdown. If you if you say basketball breakdown, I would walk off on the pod right now. <laughs> exactly. So I did hesitate It's not even technically my there. property. It's technically Coach Nick's property, so I can't, I can't mess around with the naming rights. Well, the other night... We saw the Celtics defeat the Pacers in game one of their first round series, 84-74. It was a 1980s-type game, Brad Stevens was saying after the game. Nate was asked about that at practice. He goes, I don't know. Those are his words. I'm not going to discuss that. <laughs> I think Brad was off by a decade, by the way. That was that was like a late 90s game. If it was a 1980s game, it would have been like a Sixers-Nets uh, kind of score. By the way, I'm glad you made yourself comfortable. Shoes off, feet up on the... Uh Actually, we got two Ottomans here, so Ottoman I'm going right to use there. one Ottoman per hey, foot. Why not? I gotta be I'm sorry I don't have like a cocktail here for you. Otherwise, I'd, you sh- you'd be right at home, right? Uh, actually, I just use straight whiskey when I'm recording pots at home. <laughs> you know, got to be classy. <laughs> Tell everybody about your podcast and what it's about. Uh, B-Ball Breakdown Pod. It's a pod that Coach Nick of B-Ball Breakdown has been doing for years. And uh, Dave Dufour was his co-host. And then Dave joined our friends at Count the Dings. And so he needed another whipping post. And I said, hey, I can do that. Um, so I th- we're more of an X's and O's focused podcast. If people are familiar with what Coach Nick has been doing with B-Ball Breakdown, the name is pretty indicative. He breaks down X's and O's of basketball very effectively. He's a pretty experienced coach. And I actually, a lot of what I learned over the years trying to develop, because like my niche is really X's and O's stuff. And a lot of what I learned was from watching his videos. And then I eventually became friends with him. And now we do a pod together once or twice a week. So so I was so, on Count the Dings, I think it was. one of the, There's several offerings at The Athletic to help preview the series. And so Jay King's the other writer for the Celtics. So him and I both jumped on there. And at first I was expecting Zach Harper, who who does a lot of podcasting. It was Dave. I was not aware of him just yet. And so that threw me off a little bit. But that was a that was a fun little preview to do. Which is funny because I feel like their voices are somewhat similar. But then like you see them in real life and they're the exact opposite human beings <laughs> okay. physically. Um, but they're both terrific. And they're both great podcasters. So the Celtics did not shoot it well. In the entire game, 36%, turned it over 20 times, did get 20 points off the bench from Marcus Morris. But i got to believe the Celtics feel good about where they're at just because they probably, much like the Pacers, don't feel like they played a great game, and yet they still came away with the win. Would you agree? Yeah, I think they were kind of emphasizing that, that they are that they were happy with their defense. I think both teams recognized that uh, the shooting was probably a little bit luck-based in that third quarter for the Celtics against Indy. Like, Indy rimmed out a couple... Pretty nice shots. I'll give you credit. You were the one that pointed that that out to me after. Uh, you after saw me. Was I was over. right next to you in the the media room, and I was like, "All right, I got to look at every one of these shots because it's the worst quarter in Pacers franchise postseason history." So that's history. We got to check it out. And I watched every single one, all three of Darren Collison's shots um, that he put up in the first like five minutes, in and out and uncontested. They were allowing him to shoot whatever he wanted, and so I tend to come from the belief that yes, the intensity ramped up. We saw. 
really the, the Celtics body into the Pacers much more, I thought, in the second half, but especially in that third quarter. It was the Pacers missing shots and then getting frustrated and passing up good shots. And then Boyan was telling me today how he, he as the leader now on the court, he's got to be, uh, from a scoring standpoint, he shot once, was not aggressive, in fact, felt he was passive. So that's something he's trying to work on. It will work on, he says, entering game two. It's funny because I feel like Boyan, especially in the second half of the year, has almost glided into 25 points a night or whatever he's been averaging. But just his game is it feels effortless. He just curls around mm-hmm. a screen, ball lands right in his hands. He puts up a shot. He drives and Now kicks. two feet up, Jared, over here, by the way. Oh, yeah. no, <laughs> This I, is incredible. When I when I came up with the double ottoman <laughs> idea, I'm like, you know what? I got to execute this. <laughs> Sorry, so, go ahead. And that my socks even match the orange chairs that we're sitting in, so I'm very happy. We got to paint the scene for the listener. Exactly. That's orange, three podcast. orange chairs in here. Three Actually, lamps. your sneakers match too. That's pretty nice. Yeah, I'll have to put up a photo later. But so <laughs> you know, Boyan, I think has enjoyed kind of an effortless uh, offensive rise, and I don't mean effortless in that like he hasn't been trying. I mean like he just he's figured out how to dance around in the offense and really kind of find the spots. And Boston, a big part of their game plan, I thought, coming into the game, and it was pretty apparent, was they want to be really physical at the point of attack with them. They want to push around the screeners. I mean, that's I think a huge part of Indiana's success offensively has been that they're between Turner, Sabonis, Thad for his position, a lot of really, really good screeners. Guys who know how to slide in at the last second commit those borderline legal screens that they're they're never really going to call, especially in the playoffs unless you're Kevin Durant in crunch time. But um, which yeah. that was an egregious uh, moving pick, at least on Durant. But like Turner, I think, is one of the best screen setters in the game. And Boyan has really benefited from that. And Boyan's able to get – it's like that screen slides in just at the last second. Boyan does like a full 180, just skating right around it. It's like he's on ice. It's incredible. And Boston, their attack, their plan of attack was we're going to keep chasing him, and then once we can't chase him anymore, we're going to switch and just shove somebody right in his face when he comes around mm-hmm. a screen. Or when he tries to get over a screen and kind of like go back and forth and we're not really sure where he's going to go, just push the screener right into him. And they were getting away with it. Jalen Brown did it a couple times. I think Gordon Hayward did it a couple times. And it never really seemed like Boyan was kind of running in free open space the way he was in that last game that they had in Boston where he went off in the second half. An area where I do give him credit, not just this year, but even developing towards the end of last year, was his ability to score away from the ball, his backdoor cuts, his movement away from the ball. It wasn't close to Reggie or Rip Hamilton, but it resembles what he's doing off the ball. Same thing with Doug McDermott. They're doing much more of that rather than kind of this old, as we and Pacer fans know it, is the old George Hill stand in the corner because that's all you're being asked to do. The way he's playing right now kind of reminds me of Ray Allen back when Ray like, mm-hmm. was kind of in his prime in That's Seattle. a good way to keep it back to Boston, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was thinking like kind of more Seattle, but I guess okay. actually but the Boston comparison makes more sense because he was on ball a lot more. And I mean – with all due respect to Boyan, Ray was obviously at a different level. I mean, Ray was scoring like 26 a game before he joined the big three in Boston, and he's one of the best scorers of a generation. But the way that they glide over screens, the way that they're able to quickly shoot under heavy pressure, or and, and I feel like there's just there's a lack of predictability with them. And Boston has figured out how to game plan, and Boyan has to adjust. Boyan has to be confident in a step back three. He's got to take that. He's, that's what Boston's going to force out of him. He's going to have to take that a lot more in the series. And whether or not Indiana's offense can hold up is probably going to be dependent on whether he can figure out how to get himself some open shots and score. Um, but 
what I liked about what I think what made Ray Allen so great was his perseverance that he just never stops running. Mm-hmm. He would eventually run people into the ground. Tire defenders. Yeah. yeah. And that's what Boyan's got to do. And He's got to run everybody into the ground. And to that end, I thought it was interesting. I was watching back Boyan's clips and it wasn't just one guy that held him down necessarily. That's again why I think it was more offensive woes rather than an impressive defense. Obviously a combination. But with Boyan, four different guys guarded him on shots. So it wasn't necessarily one guy. And to your point, they were pushing guys and switching last minute if necessary. Um, four for 11 for him. He did make all four of his free throws. The only player for the Pacers that really hit consistently at that foul line. I was asked this on Indy Sports Radio today. If there's one guy that has to step up in this series, who's it got to be? I said Boyan because this is a group that's really relied on and been proud about the fact that it can be any guy and it could be five, six, seven guys in double figures. Well, look, at game one loss, they have two in double figures, and it's Corey Joseph, who's had a miserable last month and a half. He leads you in scoring. I think it's Boyan. Who do you think? Yeah, that's. I'll, I'll, let me come up with someone different because that's too easy of an answer. We can debate it back and forth. How about uh, how about Miles? You know what? He's he's supposed to be the anchor of the defense. He's a deadly pick and pop threat. Mm-hmm. He's. I think he matches up from a post scoring perspective pretty decently well against this team because if Baines can push him out of position, he's supposed to be able to go to that 10 foot jump hook. That's his, you know, like he, he's, I think he's not like a dominant post scorer, but he's a versatile post scorer. So if he can't get through the defender, he at least has that touch that he can make plays happen in that kind of like high post area. So I, I think the onus is on him to really step up offensively and not let the game come to him so much as like really drive it into the game. That's a fascinating choice. I just don't see 20-point games in Miles Turner. I just don't think that's who he is, at least consistently. Maybe maybe one game this series. That's one reason I wouldn't pick that, though, because he is the anchor of the defense, but and he does need to stretch out. Um, I mean, I think it was like 35% of his made three-pointers from the top of the arc. Like That's where he gets his shot because in the pick-and-pop, he's right there. Defense sags off to help. And it leaves him open. So, yeah, I think he needs a big game. I just don't think he has enough offensive firepower in him to have a big enough night to say, quote-unquote, lead the Pacers to a win. That's my problem with that one. You're not wrong, but that's that's how you, <laughs> if you want to win a playoff series, that's, how you, that's what you got to do. You got to step mm-hmm. up in that way. And also, uh, I don't know how they get the most out of Thad Young in this series. He's the, I that's remember, a difficult find. Yeah, yeah. he's... He's out of because I, I think that they have the potential to be their best when Sabonis and Turner are both out there and that they're base. I mean, it, it's basically when Boston is going to be small. If you're going to go really big, you're basically you're fighting fire with fire rather than trying to match up with them. But both of those guys can shoot. Both of those guys can run pick and roll. So I feel like you have enough shooting on the floor with both of those bigs out there and enough individuals that can both pass and create enough for themselves offensively to be good scores that I think that has the potential to kind of mess with the Celtics, especially considering the Celtics, while they are going to start Aaron Baines, they really only want to play him about 20 minutes and they want to go relatively small most of the time. I think one of the big things in that game one, too, is Thad getting into foul trouble that impacted Nate's rotations and what he wanted to do. Um, I do feel like there is something there. I'm with you in terms of the bigs and the Pacers. And can you can you get Al Horford? Or do you get him away from the basket? Can you draw him out for a Miles Turner three? Or if they're cro- there's a lot of cross matches within this group. I, I think there might be something there. I'm just not sure what it is. Well, the interesting thing was that 
I expected that Horford would be on Turner or whomever was the four whenever Baines was out there. But Stevens started out with Horford on Turner and Baines on on uh, Young, I guess. Yeah. And that that was a bit surprising because it kind of makes sense from the perspective that Horford's a better pick and roll defender. Baines is a good ro- you know rotating in the interior pivot defender. And so if the ball gets into the paint assuming Thad Young is either hiding in the dunker spot, which he was probably more than he should have been in that game, or if he's out on like the weak side elbow or corner or whatever, it's easier for Baines to rotate in and trying to make the play there. And with Horford on that pick and roll, that means that Horford is going to be the one kind of controlling the pick and roll, and he's probably the best at that in the NBA, or at least one of the best. And so probably Draymond's the only one better. But so uh, Boston by Boston doing that, they're basically instead of trying to make Horford the free roaming guy that gets a double whenever he wants, get, tries to get a steal whenever he wants, whatever. He's on the ball and he's responsible for the pick and roll, and that tells me that Stevens one wants to try to keep it to a mid range shooting game and doesn't want to allow a lot of dribble penetration. And it tells me that too that I think he wants Horford to kind of figure out how to play Turner early in the game so that he knows how to play him at the end of the game when they want to go small at the end. Feels like the biggest mismatch to me in this series is the point guard spot, Jared. Darren Collison, Corey Joseph, both, I think, good point guards. Neither great, neither all-star type levels. And then the best player in the series, Kyrie, who's an all-NBA talent. I would say Al Horford's the best player in the series, actually. But, Why is that? Uh, Horford's defense, his playmaking, the way that he just kind of emotionally controls the team on both ends. Uh, I mean, Irving... I mean, there's as great as all that versatility stuff is. I think people kind of forget nowadays if you can score 30 points, and that's like the most valuable. That's the most valuable exactly. thing. It's literally the points. Um, and, and Kyrie brings that, and Kyrie's defense was actually pretty good in game one. Uh, but Horford, he Horford, when he's out there, it feels like there's multiple people out there. Like he's like, it's like having two guys on the floor with him. The way that he just controls the pace of play, the way that he controls where the offense is flowing, the fact that he can just kind of, he pretty much can direct the ball wherever he wants to on defense. He's been really great with that. So I think Horford probably by a hair is the most valuable overall player out there, even though, even if by most other standards, I think we would consider Irving to be the best player. And on top of that, the reason I went to that route is I'm picturing, say, Celtics down two, like their matchup at the end of the year back here in Boston. They needed a bucket, and Kyrie beat three pacer defenders, got to the basket, and, and made that layup. To me, that's the biggest area of concern on the other side for the Pacers, or if they're in that situation, where do you go? Boyan, probably out on the right wing. That's generally what they've done. I think they did that several times this year. Maybe you look to dump it off inside to Miles or something. But that's the biggest reason why I went that route. Plus, of course, Kyrie has the ball in his hands so frequently. You know, the really tricky thing, and this is where obviously they miss Victor the most, is just that Boyan it relies on them basically running a full set for them to get him the ball mm-hmm. most of the time. Sure. He's a, he's a probably an average playmaker off of the dribbler and pick and roll. And when you're running the when you're running that emergency last play of the game, you can't take the risk of trying to get the ball to that guy. You got to design that inbound play or a quick handoff to get it to him, and you got to be comfortable with the idea that you can't make that handoff or you can't make that inbound, and you're comfortable with that second option. So, them relying on Boyan is going to be really dangerous, especially considering the Celtics have guys that can both chase him off ball and guys that can have the physical advantage when they're guarding him straight up. So, 
honestly, it might come. It might be Darren as the guy that makes the play at the very end there, depending on obviously if you need a two or a three. If you need, if you just see mm-hmm. two, he might. I think he's probably that guy. And that'd be an interesting selection. They've gone to him, I believe, a couple times this year. He's not a hundred percent. I wouldn't even venture to say he's. 85-90% he dealt so with several injuries towards the end of the season. Right now, a groin injury so bad that he even underwent an MRI. So the, they don't reveal a ton, but the fact that you pay for something significant like that tells me right away that it's more than he's letting on. We look ahead to Game 2. Any thoughts on how you maybe see this play out, perhaps adjustments that we'll see Brad Stevens turn to or, or give a chance? Well, let's go to Indy side first. Corey Joseph is a really bad matchup for Boston usually. Um, the speed that he attacks with off the pick and roll is he usually blows right through the defense and he likes to kind of gnash it like Steve Nash used to, used to do where he would dribble all the way, get to the rim, can't get to the rim. So instead he kind of dribbles in a circle, loops back and then turns around <laughs> again, a lot. Yep. like 10 feet from the hoop. Usually the defense is kind of twisted up at that point. So it's actually a really nice play to make. It's why Nash made such a living off of it. When you have like two bigs down there, like they will do most of the time because if if Corey's driving all the way down there that means that the screener usually Turner or Sabonis is going to be all the way by the rim at that point you got another big down there the defense is going to be so kind of contorted at that point that he can just lob it up to one of those bigs and they can either finish or pass it to the other big who's kind of you know across the paint from them and they're usually going to have an easy finish so uh, he had a lot of success doing that in the regular season against Boston but it doesn't happen very often uh, I'd like to see Nate try to really focus on making that play happen more often. And, hey, I mean, Corey's been ice cold, having, like, the worst shooting slump of his career. Been. But in game one, he had, he had a couple shots. Like, I was shocked when he hit that first three. So maybe he breaks out of it now. If he's hitting really any shots whatsoever, I think he's probably tougher for the Celtics to deal with than Darren is. Because with Darren, like you were saying before, they're basically just kind of, like, loosely corralling him into taking that 18-footer. They want him to take that shot. They're so sagging off, daring him yeah, to take that. It's a low-value shot. If he's going to beat them with that, they'd rather him beating them with that than with threes from Boyan or whomever else. The Pacers like the Spurs, though. They don't mind the mid-range. They'll look for it and not afraid to take it. It's funny you brought up, though, in talking about Corey and Steve Nash because it's Darren that's actually talked with Steve Nash. They share an agent. So the last couple of summers they've talked last year about turning 30 and how you need to change your body and work out probably less but more efficiently and then – Little things like that. And this year, it was using the pick and roll and using your body and using angles and things like that. So I thought that was an interesting tie-in. It's funny because I felt like Darren's become a much better pick and roll player this year. Not There you go. Not really a passer, though. <laughs> it's mostly he's just a lot better at coming over the screen and getting into that 17-footer or trying to get all the way to the hoop. And his credit with his length and his build, I mean, he's able to finish with his right hand pretty nice. Um and Boston doesn't have significant length under the rim, so he should be trying to drive as aggressively as possible and try to get contact and finish with that little righty hook that he has. It's funny you say that. I, I saw in game one, I felt like their length gave the Pacers a lot of trouble. It that perimeter length, sure. No, I meant more so around the basket. I thought we saw some of the point guards or Boyan drive inside and Tatum put his hands up and boom, you know, as him he was trying to defend or Sabonis went inside and there were two bigs on him both with hands up and he I think he airballed from the left block that's the particular play that stands out to me so I thought the the length was significant 
from the Pacers' standpoint and what they were dealing with. No, you're totally right. I, I meant that in that the Celtics don't have like a Miles Turner or something. Oh, they don't, sure. They don't have that seven-footer with sure. a seven-five wingspan. Well, they, they have Rob Williams sitting on the bench, obviously, with like his seven-five wingspan or whatever it is. But but yeah, but Boston, they have, they have length throughout the court because Tatum – who is a very underrated defender, and frankly, his defense is probably as good as of as, as his offense is at this point, which most people don't really recognize. Probably because his offense has went from being overrated to probably underrated now, just because of his people comparing him to Kobe and all that kind of stuff with the shot selection. <laughs> but he uh, he's a smart defender who works really hard, and he makes a lot of mistakes. But he he has that great wingspan and height where he blocks shots pretty often. He really affects shots. Does a really good job at that. Jalen Brown also does a good job at that. Marcus Smart is probably the best shot blocking guard in the NBA left now that Dwayne Wade is eighty years old and John Wall only has one knee. So I mean they have they're able to really affect the ball with their length kind of throughout the lineup. They just you, mm-hmm. they don't have the guy that sure. kind of steps up and just swats the ball away. How about Jalen Brown getting a little dog in him, a little feistiness against Boyan? Have we have you seen that from Jalen this year? Every once in a while, it kind of rears its head. Kind of surprised me. Yeah, I think I don't know. Somebody must have said something to him, where they somehow like did one of those like mind games to psych him up. I think seeing Boyan all year, I gotta believe it was Jalen. And then Boyan and I asked him today. He was like, "I don't really talk trash, but if you come at me, I'm not gonna just stand there and not say anything." So it led me to believe that it was probably Jalen unhappy, maybe the way he was rubbed around a screen, or or maybe he felt that Boyan shoved off a little bit or missed shots, and he tried to get in Boyan's head. I don't know, but those that's kind of what I would estimate happened. Yeah, he's. I mean, Jalen's usually a pretty introverted guy who doesn't like react very much, but once in a while, if you do something to him, he'll give you like that like furrowed brow stare, <laughs> like the WTF kind of face. Um, you know, don't forget, like one of his big mentors is Isaiah Thomas, and Isaiah Thomas, the Detroit one, one of the all-time trash talkers. So maybe he's learned a little something from him over the last year. Yeah, that was interesting to me. I'll, I'll be curious if that continues. And I did like how the referees just said like a word and then let them play on. It's nothing worse than a double technical or something, especially in the playoffs. Like, what does that serve, right? We're not really even seeing any double tech so far, I feel like. There's been a bunch of fights I think K- and stuff there's like that. Katie and Beverly got one yeah, in uh, game one. Okay, right? so that's that's probably that's the only one yes, that I've it was seen. Yes, because it was the second technical, and that's why they were tossed. Yeah. yeah, that's what I don't like. Back to game two, your thoughts on what you kind of expect, perhaps maybe from a Celtic standpoint, after a film session on Monday, and then they practice Tuesday at their facility. I think they'll probably want to play with a higher pace. I mean, they're they're not comfortable only scoring 84 points. They want to be scoring 110. That's usually their kind of like their comfort zone. So they'll probably want to be a higher pace team. Um, they'll want to drive and kick more. I mean, they're they didn't get much offensive penetration. That was really good. Kyrie never really seemed like he was in rhythm attacking either. No. Which I mean, is it going to happen against probably the best, at least the best defensive team in the Eastern Conference besides Milwaukee? Right? They're great. Indiana's a great defensive team. The, the offense is probably not going to look very good. I remember, he started three for ten in the first half. Yeah, exactly. among the Celtics players that didn't shoot it well. Yeah. So, in you know, Tatum, I don't, I don't think they really know what his offensive role in this series is going to be yet. Um, they're, they're probably going to have to work him off ball more so rather than because, I mean, if 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 Turner is under the free throw line and can see where the ball is coming from, he's going to step in and stuff that mm-hmm. up. So they need to get really creative and probably working Tatum off ball is the way to do that. Um, Hayward was pretty solid. I mean, he's he's been on a real hot streak lately, and that was just kind of like a solid game from him. So I don't think there's much to change there. Um, so probably just – 
more probably more pick and roll and playmaking off of that for Kyrie. And then they still I still don't know what Terry Rogier's role is going to be in this series, but he's probably gonna have one explosive game and then one dud of a game. Maybe the last game was him <laughs> getting that dud out of the way. Uh, but he, he tends to find an equilibrium between there eventually as the series goes on. So maybe he'll have one game where he comes off for 15 points off the bench. And what fans may recognize with him is he's able to run the point right, and then Kyrie able to play off the ball, and that's a little bit of a different look for the Celtics. So they can do, they're going to do more of that. that I think that's probably going to happen. Kyrie is really good off the ball, and he doesn't like to play off the ball very often. We saw it a lot with Cleveland, right? Because LeBron would bring it he up. He had to. I think I think maybe he's been getting all of his years of wanting to be on the ball kind of like out of the system <laughs> lately. Uh, but he's amazing. I mean, most of these guys are better off the ball because when you're off the ball, they're not paying attention to you. You're not limited by dribbling. You can run faster. You can move however you want. It's like you're a better basketball player when you're off the ball 99% of the time. And you watch it. When they use him as a shooting guard, he is – He's unstoppable because he can he can come over a screen and pull up and shoot from thirty feet in. So like you can't really do anything to stop him from shooting. And when he catches the ball on the move, he can like stop on a dime and change direction. He can do all that kind of stuff. So I think the more that he's off the ball, one the more defensive impact he's probably going to make because he's probably going to be a little less fatigued, mm-hmm. which is a big thing they need out of him. Um, and just like the more unpredictable they get, and Kyrie. He takes a lot of bad shots because his offense gets predictable and because he likes going to like his right corner fade away or his or his step back turnaround J from the left elbow. Like he likes settling for those shots because he's amazing at them. Um, but when <laughs> tough life, yeah, I'm just so good at this. Yeah, but you know, it's, <laughs> we talk about this a lot in Boston. But like, if you compare him to to the second Isaiah Thomas when he was here a couple years ago. He had that Maury Moneyball distribution of everything was a three or a shot in the paint. And he had the same shot profile as Kyrie before he got to Boston. And over the course of like two and a half years, he really worked to being just threes or shots in the paint. And Kyrie made some progress with that initially. And then I feel like it's kind of waned this year. Um, but like those those shots that he hits that are so amazing, it's just like with Darren Collison. It's like, you know, the defense is going to try to run him off of the three-point line and push him into the 18-footer, knowing he's going to make probably half of those. But he's not adding that extra point. He's not drawing a foul. And that's what they care about the most. After game one, did you get a feel for the Celtics in terms of, did they get some kind of confidence boost after this type of a win? How were they feeling in terms of the series? I know the Pacers, from their standpoint, they didn't feel great, but... They felt better after reviewing film and realizing it really was, in our opinion, that we just missed shots. We were better than that. I think it was a little bit of PR spin to them delivering that message. Well, well, it was certainly true. Um, you know, I think they're trying to they're trying to put out the message of the Celtics aren't better than us and they didn't beat us up and show that they're the better team. It was just we didn't perform at our standard, that kind of thing. Um, for Boston they're really quietly confident coming into the series because they won. They just won those last two games a couple of weeks ago. They recognize that Indiana is good of a, as good of a regular season team as they were over the last month and a half. They were what, like 20th in net rating. So they, they haven't been playing like a playoff team overall. And once you're in the playoffs, once, you know, when you don't have that go-to score, you're, it's really hard to really finish out a game. So they know that they're coming into this with a big upper hand. I think Morris, having a big a big shooting night was really vital because mm-hmm. he's had a pretty brutal basically last two months of the season 
and Tatum's defense being really good. Tatum and Brown playing really good defense. I think that was probably the other really vital thing that they came out of that game with. Before we wrap up, just a couple more items I want to discuss here. First, uh, go back to the defensive side of the ball for the Pacers. Pacers starting out Wesley Matthews, their pickup in February after Victor went down. And that's the main guy they've been throwing at Kyrie. How do you think he fared in game one and the possibility of him doing a good enough job to keep the Pacers at bay during this series? Not too bad of a job, honestly. I mean, what I like about Wes's matchup with Kyrie is that even though he's lost some of his bursts, he has really good balance. And I think with Irving, that's more important because Irving isn't like a super speedy guy. He's just very nimble and agile and changes direction really frequently. So it's all about really being able to like stay low and wide and stay in front of him. That's the hard part. And I think he does that probably better than Collison and Joseph does. Um, so... I guess in the starting lineup, it makes it definitely makes the most sense to have him be the matchup. And then I liked where off the bench, then to go back to your previous point, they were able to bring in Corey Joseph. He's more of a defensive-minded point guard, and they throw threw him a little bit at him. Um, and I think that's your, your next option after Wesley is Corey, who's a much better defender than Collison is at the point guard spot. And he's actually physically very similar to Kyrie. They have like kind of like a similar mm-hmm. build, yeah. similar agility and quickness. Joseph probably has more downhill speed. He's like, I feel like Joseph is. No, kind I think of, I think Collison has more speed. His parents were both superstar track runners. Really? Yeah, both healthy. I would take Collison every time. It's funny because when I watch Joseph, it feels like he's the fastest because it's because maybe because he's more of a line drive runner when he's running huh. pick and roll. I see him more as the smooth, efficient runner, whereas I think Collison is quicker, probably getting to point A from point A to point B. I'll default to you. You watch him more than <laughs> I do, but I always thought of Joseph as a super speedy guy. Which in my head, I was thinking mm-hmm. like that doesn't calculate right because he's the the Spursian gliding point guard type. But I think Joseph matches up very nicely against Kyrie. I did get a kick out Wesley to start the game with his, I don't know what you call it, the bandana or whatever on. It was just fired up. You could tell this is where he wanted to be. This is why he's in part signed with the Pacers, not only to be guaranteed a starting role, but to do it on a playoff team. Several other teams interested. Um, playoff teams like uh, Oklahoma City for one. Paul George, Russell Westbrook, Raymond Felton, all three of them called him to try to recruit him. Um, but he was just fired up. It was like he threw down a couple of Red Bulls before the game. <laughs> it's a good fit. He, he does what they need. He's basically a poor man's Victor Oladipo. If only he could give point. him more of a scoring punch because yeah. his numbers have been down. Like everybody else, they've been down over this last month. I mean, Wes at this point of his career isn't much of an offensive player. He's a spot-up shooter who can uh, you know attack off the dribble a little bit, but he's not much of a playmaker. If you could get 12 points, though, is what I'm getting at. Yeah. Because you need a couple threes, bow and arrow to the bench, as he always does. <laughs> Maybe a layup in transition and a mid-range shot. That's kind of what I'm looking from him production But he, but he moves with intensity and energy, and that's what he. That's why he was. That's why he got his contract from Dallas, because he always showed that he'd be good to make a couple plays off ball as an offensive player, be an active, hands-up, you know, hands aggressive, quick-feet defender. That's what they need. Anything else, Jared, stand out to you about this series? Uh, I, I want to see Sabonis really be Sabonis and really dominate, and... He, he couldn't get into his game in the first one. It's a big playoff series for him this summer. I think the Pacers intend to make an offer because he's going to be eligible for the, on the rookie extension, much like we saw for Miles Turner this season. But he's, he's probably the Pacers' most physical player inside. Um, he's too lenient 
on that left hand of his, and I think that can get him in trouble sometimes. I thought I was surprised at the amount of times that the Celtics brought a double team over. A couple bigs, whether it was maybe Baines and Horford, both slid over, and that's where he did have trouble. And he was just missing around the rim as well. I mean, I think Baines can push him, which is that's usually he has a physical advantage, but Baines can get low, throw an elbow into your ribs, and really mess with you. And then I think he's probably used to the double being a guard and a big against them. Of guards coming down, as some people yeah. call digging, trying to reach in and slap it away. Exactly. And they did that a lot. Rozier tried to do that a lot and failed, um, which Rozier's really good at that kind of like quick dig swipe. Um, but they were able to rotate, you know, two bigs down onto him. He's probably not used to that. And I mean, I don't think there's any big in the NBA that can usually handle two bigs really pressuring them on the block. Uh, it's, you know, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty much impossible to get out of that. And he's not quite, he's tall, but he's not like quite tall enough to shoot over that. So that could be the antidote for him, but he's just got to be early catch, push, just push guy, push guys immediately. And that's kind of the antithesis of his style because his style is like work a guy for five seconds, kind of back him down, back him down, yeah. back him down into position, then take that shot. But, and I know that's something that the Celtics were talking about before the game that they were, or before the season or series rather, that they were worried about. So, Maybe he figures that out. I would expect – I mean, I haven't seen Nate in in a situation going up against a team with multiple defensive bigs uh, in the playoffs yet because Cleveland didn't really do that. No, they um, actually – their most successful lineup was when they went small. Exactly. So Boston is trying to fight – you know, trying to fight size with size right now, and it's working really well because I don't think Indiana was really ready for that. The other thing I think – that impacted Sabonis was the way in which the Celtics defended the pick and roll. And Sabonis can be so effective in that, but it felt like they were dropping and taking away those easy layups or, um, you know, oftentimes he'll either take it to the basket or if he, or if he attracts a double team from the guard, like you were talking about, that's when he shovels it off to a, to a Tyreek or to a Corey Joseph or someone of that ilk. And that wasn't there as much as he's used to. See, that's why, uh, another way that they really miss Oladipo is that if Oladipo is running that pick and roll, the Celtics might have to blitz the ball, which they don't do very often, or they'd have to switch. And that would give Sabonis a much easier role. But the Celtics are doing, for the most part, a deep drop, which is that the guard's going to go over the ball, and then the big is going to sit back on like the nail on the free throw line and just kind of invite that short roll a little bit. And if Sabonis wants to kind of stop at 20 feet and take that jumper, they can kind of jump up into his face and contest that shot. And then they can catch him if he's rolling all the way to the rim. So it's Sabonis and Turner, if they want to if they want to beat the Celtics, they need to be popping off of those screens and taking threes at the top of the key whenever they see Aaron Baines dropping back deeper. Horford does usually a high drop or he gets kind of like below the free throw line, kind of like just below the screen level, low enough that he can still kind of drop with the ball and drop at the roll, but high enough that he's kind of hitting the ball as it's coming over the screen. Jared, anything you want to promote? Any writing, podcasts that people can check out? Uh, yeah, Scott Agnes had a great piece after game one. Thank Go you. check that out. Um, yeah, I have. I would, I would say Jared wrote a pretty good one, too. A <laughs> game one breakdown with at least four bullet points. That's true. There were multiple bullet points in that. Um, I have my pre-series scouting report as well. Still uh, relevant. Yeah. Once you've done listening to every single pod that's ever been released on this channel, you can go listen to the B-Ball Breakdown podcast. We just had one come out last night, I believe, where we talked about how bad the Sixers looked in game one. And then uh, 
we release a podcast and then the Sixers are amazing in game two and totally ruined the podcast. But there's still more to listen to about the other series in there as well. Well, we recorded this Tuesday night in downtown Boston as the sun set on the nice river out there. Yeah, what, it's beautiful. This guy here, your your host here, has got this unbelievable view, 20, <laughs> 25th floor overlooking the Charles River in Boston. Perfect view. I mean, this is one of the best views I've seen of the city. I've been living here my whole life. It's pretty cool. Well, I appreciate you jumping on with me, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk at least once more throughout the series. Game two, Pacers-Celtics coming up Wednesday evening from Boston. Then we'll return to Indianapolis for games three and four. Jared, thanks for jumping on with me. As always. If you haven't done so already, subscribe to the Pacers podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and tune in wherever you listen to your podcast. We're on there. And leave us a review if you can. We would appreciate that. Otherwise, that'll do it for me from Boston. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.